stand with me for the reading of the word. We are reading from Acts chapter 4, and we are going to jump in at verse 13. So, uh, skipping down a little bit here. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For there for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was, uh, for the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. There's a lot of good announcements tonight. For those of you who feel like you'll be shortchanged, that I'll somehow shorten the sermon Rest assured, we'll keep it keep it to the same length. Not just kidding. Tonight we're in Acts chapter four. How many of you are enjoying our time in Acts? Good. Yeah, me too. I am also joining. And, and again, even if you weren't, we're still going to be in Acts tonight. So, no bearing on that at all. But uh, it is. Really neat. I just want to take a second to kind of think through, through this. But there's so many great things that are happening here, and partly because we are going through the Book of Acts. I know that as we elders have been meeting, it definitely has allowed us to think more specifically on those those sort of big ideas. Where's refuge going? What are we What are we doing? Why are we here? All those those types of very existential at these meetings, you know. But it's it's a good thing to stop and to think through what it is we're doing and why. Um, and there have been some great examples of, of that type of thought in, in, in the past. And um, I just remember hearing um, a story from, quick story and then we'll jump in the text. Um, story from Francis Chan when they were having a, a meeting and uh, they were talking about the progress on raising a, this massive amount to build this massive new building. And they stopped for a second and said, why are we doing this? It was, like, it was something like $6 million or something like that to build this massive campus. Is, why, why are we doing this? What, what is the purpose of just having a bigger building? And to just remind ourselves that there's, 
to, to borrow a phrase that probably doesn't belong in, in Acts, there's no sacred cows, right? There's nothing that is so important that we have built that can't be questioned. And there's nothing that is so important that we have started that shouldn't be reevaluated in light of what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do, what he is telling us to do, and those opportunities that he's given us. So I, I do hope and pray that during this time, as we're going through the book of Acts, and we're, we're sort of seeing these, these bricks being laid for the early church, that we would be willing to reevaluate not just things that are going on in refuge, but maybe within our own families. What are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? Is there something that we should be doing? And maybe that's a good conversation to have amongst many families. Uh, so just something to kind of deposit there as we look in the book of Acts. So um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. Um, if you have your phone, you can beep, bop, boop right on over. And Acts chapter 4. Uh, John read the last section of, of Acts chapter 4. And, and one of the reasons I think it's important to really make sure we highlight that aspect is because that's really uh, it's, it's applicational, but what's interesting about that part, it's applicational not necessarily for Peter and John. It was an application for the Sanhedrin. And so it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a turn on, on the head of what we would normally look for uh, as far as an application for the passage. So when we get there, you'll see what, we'll see what we're saying. Let's look at the first part of Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read the first few verses here, the first six verses. And as they were speaking to the people, and the they there is most likely the apostles or specifically Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all those who were, or I'm sorry, and all who were of the high priestly family. Dot, dot, dot. We'll pause there just for a second. <clears throat> so this is sort of the, the setting of the scene. So you have, as we've talked about before, the, the apostles and uh, the rest of the church. They were meeting in the temple, uh, the, or at least the temple complex. It says daily they were going. Um, and as they were there, they were, they were obviously teaching not just their own group, this, this definitely sets this up to where their teaching was a little bit more public. There were people who were gathering there and were hearing what they were saying. And one thing to point out here is the Sadducees, the captain of the temple, the priests, it says that they were greatly annoyed. That's funny. This pops back up in Acts. Paul is uh, encouraged by his own annoyance to deliver a girl from a demon, and it seems as though annoyance also drives people to uh, not want to hear their, uh, 
opposing theology. And, and what's interesting here is, is this. The Sadducees, we, we, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about all the different factions of Judaism at the time, but in the temple, the temple complex, that area there, there was a sect of Judaism that was sort of in charge of that whole area, and that was the Sadducees. Throughout the Gospels, we have the most interaction with the Pharisees, Sadducees a little bit, mostly the Pharisees. This, this was the Sadducees. They were in charge of the temple, the, the priests, how that would all work, and some of that was in agreement with uh, local government. So the Romans kind of gave them over this, this whole area here to, to work on. Now, the thing that's interesting is the Sadducees had a different sort of set of uh, tenets that they held to in comparison with the Pharisees. This feels really weird to say, but if we were living at that time, we would most likely align with the Pharisees more than the Sadducees, which feels weird because throughout the gospel, Jesus really doesn't hold back when he's sort of blasting the Pharisees. But the Pharisees took all of Scripture, so at the Old Testament, they would take that as God's word. The Sadducees really only held the first five books of Moses to explicitly be God's word. And one of these points of theology that they disagreed with with the Pharisees was resurrection. They did not think that there was going to be a resurrection from the dead. So what's interesting here is they hear Peter and John preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and that is why they're annoyed. And so, as you normally do in a theological conversation, they threw them in jail. And it's almost as if it's the end of the day, and they're so annoyed, and they don't want to deal with them, so they toss them in jail. I mean, there you go. Now, I wanted to pause here for a second because there's something that is then discussed. So they toss them in jail, verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men was about 5,000. Now, that's a lot of people to be in that temple complex listening. So, that is uh, a big number. What does this make you think about? That number, 5,000. I'm sorry? Bingo. So, think about this. So, here they are. They're teaching, right? There's 5,000 men that are counted right? And then they are thrown into jail. Now think about this. So they're there preaching, and they see that number there. Think of all the memories that come back. Being out someplace with Jesus, and that number of people listening and resonating with that message and believing. Their experience, the first, part, first time this, this happened, was the people were there, right? They were fed from Five loaves, two fishes. And then it, they came back around, but it was pretty clear that they were around for another meal. What was different this time? It says here that the 5,000 of them, they what? They believed. They were added to the number. Right? So, so this idea of them being able to not only step into the same ministry that Jesus had as far as the preaching of the kingdom. But some of the same things that had been going on when he was preaching, they were starting to experience and they were starting to see. 
So that is what they had seen before they were tossed in jail. And I thought it was important to kind of bring that up because that experience that they had, which is one of the few experiences like this that's in all four Gospels, pretty much all the same details are added. This seemed to be a really important experience that they had. That's the last thing that they saw before they were tossed in jail. So do you think when they got tossed in jail, that do you think they were upset or do you think they were happy? What do you think is the general sort of, sort of uh, feeling, emotion that they were feeling? Of course, we don't know specifically. Uh, I can see from, from lip reading that Tom agrees with me that there was joy there. There was happiness. Things are happening. But I also want to highlight the fact that they were then thrown in jail. So now think about us. Maybe we're experiencing something. There's something really big happening. There's good stuff happening. And if we got thrown in jail, what would we probably think? Where would our focus naturally be? The fact that we're in jail, right? We don't know much about the conditions, what's going on, all those different things. But I think sometimes we can get distracted from what the Lord is doing by what happens along the way. And I would categorize this as most likely just an inconvenience. This here is an inconvenience. But this inconvenience brought them to exactly where they needed to be for them to say exactly what they needed to say at exactly the right time that they needed to do it. So much of what we do on a day, day in, day out sort of just our life, just living, we, we can get distracted by some of those things that we'd say, that didn't work out exactly how I thought it was going to work out. Now, I think this is really important because of what we're going to see here in just a second as I stand before the Sanhedrin. But for us, just a really quick mini application as we go through. This is, this is only the first point. We've got an application already. But part of that application would be that a lot of times when we are doing exactly what the Lord wants us to do, that's when we will experience something that is probably out of left field something that we didn't think would necessarily happen, something that we would see as this is an inconvenience, or worse, this is a trial. This is terrible. On the next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So I wanted to point that out because they are then meeting with what is regarded as the Sanhedrin. It's a that larger body. This is made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, all meeting on the council. So why were they thrown in jail? Because they annoyed the Sadducees preaching the resurrection. What do the Pharisees bring up? Something completely different. Look at verse 7. When they had set them in the midst... They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Do what? Clearly the Sanhedrin, the the Pharisees side of this thing, has a completely different reason for them being brought before them. The Sadducees may have been irritated on theological grounds. It seems like the Pharisees have a completely different issue. What is the issue? We'll learn about it later. Later on. And it is funny, it's not even mentioned here in this part. It's not until later we find out that it's because of the person that was healed 
in chapter 3. We've already moved on, probably. He was healed, that's great. And so we start getting into the next part of the story, but they're still fixated on this. Who, by whose name, did you do that? They're stuck there. And we can easily sort of skip through that and just kind of jump into the rest of this, but just a little backgrounder on this. What is this? Why the name? Name theology is really, really important, especially when understanding things that are going on in the Old Testament. The, in the Old Testament, I think, I think we know this, this much. I think we've talked about it before. They didn't use the proper name for the Lord, for Yahweh. In fact, there's some churches, the fact that I just said that, they would be, you said it. But they wouldn't use his name. So they would use the word Lord, Adonai, and so when they're reading and it said his name, you can tell in reading in the Old Testament if it's all caps, Lord, that's the covenant name for God, that's Yahweh. They would say Lord, or they would say the name. But it's more than just a substitute. This concept of the name is very important, and I think it's important because Peter is going to address it here, but in Exodus chapter 23, in Exodus 23, we actually have a theological point that's brought up here. Look at verse, let's see, chapter 23, verse 20. There we are. So back in Exodus, it says, Behold, I send an angel or a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Pause there for a second. Who's the only one who can pardon transgressions? Pharisees make this point. Who's the only one who can forgive sin? God himself. So is this just some regular messenger, regular angel? There's more than that. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. It's more than just his first name. The name, whose name? That's what Moses asks Asks with the burnt, when the burning bush is talking to him, who do I say sent me? He says, I am that I am. It's important. This, the question that they are asking, Peter and John, what God, what power, what authority are you doing this by? Who is it? It's a very important question. Now, before we get to this, I want to pause for, for one moment in this story because we could read on through it, but we need to add some drama, okay? So, who here's watched the, the uh, series Lost? Anyone? You can admit it. It's okay. There's no judgment here, okay? So, if you haven't seen it, one of the things that they do is you've got this group of people together. Something will be happening that's happening in the, in, right there in that moment, but they'll do a flashback. They'll take the flashback maybe five years, ten years in the past. They'll tell this whole part of a story. And then they'll jump back to 
that moment, and they might give a simple answer. But all of a sudden, that little simple answer means a whole lot more than just that simple little answer. Now there's a whole lot of background to it. There's a lot of feeling behind it. I think that's actually what's happening here. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, says, I'm going to back up to verse 10, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That usually takes the lion's share of attention when we're reading through this passage, but I think the next verse is important. Verse, t- verse 11 says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, that seems to be kind of where we're at, right? Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And I think that is an incredibly important point here. Because what Peter is going to say sounds like it's, well, yeah, that's just a gospel answer, but there's a little bit more to it, as we'll see. And this also plays into something else that I think is going on. John chapter 18. There's a lot of things happening there, but this is the moment when Jesus is taken by the, uh, the guards, quite possibly some of the same people who were here, most likely, brought before sort of a kangaroo court held at night, totally illegal, but brought them before some of these same people here and if you remember Peter where was Peter at that time when Jesus was standing in faux trial where was Peter I'm sorry he was looking on he was like way over here like way out here somewhere but he could still look in the window he could still see what's going on he was out there wanting to see what's happening bold Peter hiding over there by the fire over there you know not wanting anyone to blow his cover. So when someone says, oh, you're one of those Galileans. What? No, it wasn't me, right? How many times did he deny? Three times before that rooster crowed. So think about that. There's fearful hiding Peter out here, doesn't want to be connected or identified with Jesus, kind of looking through the window there. What's the situation now? He's in exactly the situation that he did not want to be in, the same situation that he denied Jesus three different times to avoid, and now here he is, standing there. Exactly where he didn't want to be. One thing would have been different if he had been found out and if his worst fears had been realized, and he'd been dragged in front of the uh, the court at that time, who would have been standing there next to him? Jesus would have been there, probably would have been a little bit more, hey, me and Jesus, we're standing here together, right? Peter and John, they're standing there. Who's standing there with them? No one physically, but exactly who Jesus promised would be standing with them in Luke 
chapter 12. The Holy Spirit. So how does Peter answer? Is he scared? Does he deny it? Does he pretend to not know what they're talking about? Is he looking around for chickens? No. None of those things. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that the name, remember this is important, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that first part of that sentence would have made the Pharisees cringe, ugh. and then the second half would have made the Sadducees cringe. Ugh. So he's getting all of them. By this man, oh, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. Notice verse 12. This is salvation, and there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is there any doubt what name they're talking about? What's interesting is it's not them. It's not Peter. It's not John. It's not the apostles. It's Jesus. Which, you gotta, you got to think of the situation that they're in. They're standing before the Sanhedrin, and not two months earlier, they were right in the middle of all of this. They set up this faux court, this pretend court, this illegal court, and they condemned him. Then they went out to Pilate, and then they, they're the ones that really pushed to have Rome execute him. This is, remember, this is not that long ago. So when Peter stands there and says, yeah, you crucified him, the one whom we are calling upon, the one who we are doing these things in, the name, that's Jesus. And you crucified him. But he says, so for us, we'd say, like, oh my gosh, that's the, that's the crux of that. No pun intended. That's, but that's the crux of that conversation that they're having there. But look, look back a little bit. I think we might just run right past this. In verse 11, it says, this Jesus is the stone by which, I'm sorry, that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this section here, I think this is actually the thing that was really the, the, just the, the punch right, landed right on the jaw for them. Because what Peter is alluding to here is Psalm 118. Turn to Psalm 118 real quick. And this, this must have been incredibly impactful for Peter, for the apostles. He mentions it here. This is something the Holy Spirit brought to his mind to say right here. And I think it really is the Holy Spirit who brought this specific passage. This psalm, Psalm 118, is this arrival, this, this discussion concerning the actual king, this 
one who is coming. He's talked about in lots of wonderful euphemisms throughout Psalm 118. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation. I'm reading verse 15. There are tents of the righteous, are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. If we look here, though, at verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Who has Peter identified as the builders? All of them that are standing before, that whole Sanhedrin, he says, you're the builders. Jesus stood before you, and you rejected him. This is one of the best sort of analogies of this redemptive kind of picture that Jesus is. He was a rejected one, and they could not see who he really would be. They they could not see or recognize his future glory, even though they had been told and they had seen. They'd seen all these different things. They saw that stone and they rejected it. So when we're talking about a cornerstone, you all know what a cornerstone is. It's not a keystone. It's not the stone that you look at and it tells you the year and the things and stuff. We have a lot of those that are visible. You can go to different um, buildings that were built before a certain time, you'd have this like keystone there and some of these details. But that's not it. The cornerstone, the cornerstone is either one of two things. It's either the stone that was placed and was measured and, and, and put in there perfectly so that the whole rest of the building was built, in, built according to the measurements there. So they spent a lot of the time putting it there and the stone was, was cut perfectly and whatever, so that it could be the guide for the rest of the building. Or... It's where two walls come together and there's one place that becomes this weight-bearing important piece that holds the whole building together when it, when it finally does come together. Could be one of those or could be both. But the point is, is that there was a stone that should have been recognized as the cornerstone, but instead the builders saw it and they rejected it, implying that the builders went on building without this stone. Peter's saying... That's you. Jesus was here. And you tossed him aside. You rejected him. But here's something interesting that doesn't pick up really well in English. Okay? Um, the, the Old Testament that is usually quoted in the New Testament is the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation. So in some of there, there's some very specific words that are used. And not to bore you with grammar, but he quotes Psalm 119. But when he gets to that word that the builders rejected, the word there he uses for rejected is not from Psalm 119 in the Septuagint. So there's lots of uh, arrogant Scholars who would say, see, Peter's a dummy. P 
Peter can't even quote stuff right. But as was read, does this, do the people in that council there, do they think that what he says was dumb because he misquoted? What instead do they say? If you look down, they say, these are, how? This, they, they are uneducated men. This is where I think the Holy Spirit had him use the word from Isaiah 53 for rejected. So Isaiah 53, verse 3, there's a word here in the Septuagint that is sometimes used for that. It uses that verb. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. This is this uh, uh, suffering servant passage I'm sure that we're familiar with. He uses the verb from this verse, brings that in. So remember it says the Holy Spirit will tell you what words to use? Very specific words because this spoke volumes. Because what it says, it's not just a rejection. It then draws them back to this passage to say not only have you rejected the cornerstone, but understand the suffering that Jesus took upon himself, he then connects it with that. In just one word, he pulls these two concepts together and preaches a sermon to these scholars that they probably shouldn't have been able to. And yet Peter does. And with these connections, we see what happens here in the rest of Acts 4. So turning back to Acts 4. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. What better compliment could you get? Even from the age of 12, they marveled at Jesus making connections with the teachings of God in a way that someone who wasn't specially Educated should have been. When they say uneducated, they don't mean illiterate. Some people think it just means they were just dumb. They couldn't do any. They couldn't read or anything like that. Most of the synagogues taught basic literacy and these things as they were younger. So they actually had a pretty high literacy rate in that region, even though it seemed odd that they would, but they did. So they're basically saying you're not specialized in this. That's almost like that's our job. What are, you, what are you doing? That's the same sort of reaction they would have with Jesus. They kept sending waves after waves of scholars to go and catch him in some sort of mistake or trip him up with some sort of detail. And they never could quite get it, right? Because, and there's Jesus. How frustrating would that be? From their perception, from Nazareth, this country bumpkin comes over here and basically schools all of their scholars. This is the experience that they're having again. They perceived that they had been with Jesus. It's like, oh no. You got more Jesuses running around here. It's pretty telling what happens here. Verse 13 through 18 is the, uh, or I should say through 22, but these verses 13 through 18 is their response. This is the response of people who are outside of the church outside the assembly, responding to the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
Now you gotta wonder too, how did they get this information? Verse 14, by seeing the man was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they're not even there. So how do we get this? I think Saul is there. Who would later be Paul. Saul is most likely in this room. In this conversation. I don't know how much he was speaking, but most likely he was there. They may have gotten this part Luke may have gotten this part from Paul. Look at verse 16. So they told them to leave, and then they were saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. So now they're stuck. It's not just words. It's not just they're irritated by theology, like the Sadducees. It's like they've got, they've got actual power and proof behind this message. They claim the name of Jesus. They have someone there who clearly has been healed. Miraculous sign, what are we supposed to do here? We can't deny it. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak. Right? Don't say it anymore. To speak no more to anyone in this name. See, they're still really stuck on that part of their theology there. There's power in that name, and they can't deny it. The one thing that's missing from this conversation is humility. Sadly, they don't find it. Verse 18, so they called them back and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. There, that fixed it, right? So just, just to highlight this, they can't deny it. They can't really go against it. They've themselves have been condemned by the word of God for their actions. Something they decided months earlier now is coming back to haunt them again. They thought they'd taken care of it. Nope. So they said, all right, don't, don't you teach that anymore. You hear me? I don't know how they said it. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have I'm sorry, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So basically they said, don't you dare do that anymore. And they just said, no. (laughs) No, I mean, how how can we not? And, And literally, the man is standing there who was healed. So what is he supposed to do? So go from here and don't say anymore? What's that guy? He's like, how are you healed? Uh, not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> but I can see now. He'd been blind his whole life. He's 40 years old. And that's why they, they make a point of it. Like, this is not like he had temporary blindness and then, oh, now he's better. Like, he, he has been blind. This, is, this should be totally impossible. And yet, there he is. What are they supposed to do? 
just not talk about it. And Peter and John are like, I can't, we can't help, help but talk about these things. And of course, they're not just talking about the man. They're talking about much more than that, right? We can't help but talk about all the things that Jesus told us, especially now. The one thing that's really evident here is that though those, those men all stand there in authority, those men have zero authority. There's nothing that they can say that will stop Peter and John. There's no threat. Verse 21, this is also kind of interesting. I thought this was funny. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Threats, that they weren't even worth writing down. Threats, I don't know, they threatened us, whatever. But then they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Now notice this, because of the people, for they were praising God for what had happened. Who's really afraid in this scenario? It's the Sanhedrin. They're all afraid. They're afraid of the people. What they really should be afraid of, they should really be fearing the Lord, right? I mean, miraculous signs, right? The people are all seeing this and understanding this, and they're all with them. Why would they not be afraid of the Lord? Verse 22, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So we've already talked about that. Can't deny it. This, this news is getting out. It's already out. Everybody knows. And I think this is really important because I think for us, we stand before people like this all the time and we're questioned. And what is our answer? Sometimes we actually answer out of fear. Or don't answer. We find a way to weasel out of it. John and or Peter and John make no no attempt to weasel out of what they've done. They simply speak what the Holy Spirit has put on their heart to speak. Who has the power in that conversation? It's Peter and John. There's there's there is a, a, a vacuum of power behind those men who stand or probably sit, sitting there. There's nothing that they can do to them. I wonder if Peter thought about that, that a few months earlier he had been the one scared. Why was he scared? I think there's a temptation to make a one-to-one correlation between this and maybe a Romans 13 governing authorities kind of a thing, except they weren't really the governing authorities. That was Rome. Standing before Rome. In fact, this group here, they couldn't even execute Jesus, right? So were they really the governing authorities in total? I don't think so. But they were those who wielded a lot of power, not just in the community, but also over the culture. And honestly, if you think of the scenarios, when are we ever really going to be called before a governor or before a sort of government official to answer? Probably not as frequently as we will be called to answer for theological things and cultural things, which we are probably called to task all the time. So rather than making this a specific, this is how you act before the government, this should be, this is how you act before most other people that you interact with. Right? Now, they, they are the ones who are setting some of these rules, 
these additional laws that people would live by, all their cultural laws, right? Think of how powerful the Sabbath was as far as their laws would go. They were worried about optics. What are we supposed to say? How do we say it? All those different things. That's what they're worried about. Peter and John don't have any of that to fear because all they speak is the message of Jesus, and the message of Jesus was undeniable. So here's part of this. When we stand before those who might question Jesus, what are those parts of your life that you can point to to say clearly, undeniable, work of God? I think sometimes we're scared to do that because we have to maybe talk about some of our failures so we could talk about God's glories. Maybe. Maybe that's what makes it a little difficult. But there are parts of our lives or the lives of those around us where we can point and say, undeniable, God is at work. We can point to what Jesus has taught to say, clearly undeniable. This is something that Jesus taught, that cornerstone passage, that Peter just didn't pull that out of nowhere. The Holy Spirit brought, brought that to his mind, prompted to his mind, because in three different Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus taught the same thing. So they clearly listened, listened to what Jesus had taught, Holy Spirit brought it to mind, and they had nothing to say. That is our scenario. And too often, I think, we think that we're on our heels. When in fact, if we just spoke the words of Jesus and what Jesus has done in our lives and the lives of those around us, I don't think they have anything to say. Definitely wouldn't have anything that they could do to you. So take Peter and John as examples in this. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for the examples of your apostles, Peter and John, the things that you led them to do, to say, to write. Lord, thank you for their example. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't idolize them as those who are perfect, but instead see them as those who just were excited to say what God was doing what Jesus was doing, what the Holy Spirit was doing in their lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be like Peter and John. When we are called to task, when we are put on the spot, when we are asked, hey, why do you do those things? Whose name do you do those things by? What authority do you have that we would, in a very simple way, rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the right words that we might speak your truth in a way that is undeniable for them? something they can't deny. Lord, I pray that more of our speech would be the undeniable work of Jesus, the undeniable work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would sift through our own hearts, our own minds, trim out those things that don't really belong, that have been planted there either by the enemy, by ourselves, by convenience. And Lord, when we see those inconvenient things in our lives pop up, we would see them as opportunities to speak your truth rather than things to gripe about, be impatient about, or just be annoyed. Lord, I pray we'd let those around us be the ones who are annoyed, and instead we would trust in you, that we would recognize the situations that we're placed in. We're placed in there because you have deployed us to speak your word, to speak your truth. And just as you told the woman in Samaria, Lord, that there would come a day where we would worship in spirit and in truth rather than in the temple. We live in those days. Lord, I pray that 
we'd be filled up with truth, Lord, that we would be relying on the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would speak the words that we are meant to speak. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for their examples. Lord, I pray that we would walk in a similar manner. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.